0: An editorial published on bmj.com today um, describes QAF, the Quality and Outcomes Framework, as one of the most ambitious pay-for-performance schemes um, introduced in any healthcare system and one of the most divisive. Now to talk about that, I'm joined by one of the authors, who's Martin Marshall, Professor of Healthcare Improvement at UCL and practicing GP. Um, Martin, You've got a dog in the this. so tell us a little bit about your your background and and why you're writing about QOF.
1: Yeah, so my background is, as as you describe, I'm a a GP in in East London. Uh, I've always been a clinician throughout all my career, Uh, but I've also um, been an academic and I'm currently Professor of Healthcare Improvement at UCL. Uh, And I've worked in government in in policy roles, so I come at... um, The role of the quality and outcomes framework from I guess a a clinical perspective, an academic perspective and a policy perspective.
0: So three hats on there. Mm -hmm. Um, Now COF was introduced in 2004 so if we could Mm -hmm. kind of go back through the mists of time, um, Tony Blair was still Prime Minister, I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, enthusiasm, excitement, um, optimism in the Mm -hmm. NHS because of the sudden influx of, of money and things and QOF was designed to, to improve healthcare. So um, at that time, what was QOF what was meant to be fixing? What was, what was the change that, you, that needed to be implemented? So prior to
1: 2004, um, GPs were largely paid on the basis of capitation. So how many patients did they have uh, on their list? And that only a very small proportion of their income came from whatever they might have done um, to patients, mm. item service or, or specific uh, incentives. Um, at that time, GP morale was actually quite low. Um, and there was a, a strong perception, a reality, I think, that GPs were, re- were relatively underpaid. Mm. So uh, the Labour government agreed to make a very significant uh, investment in general practice. Um, but they didn't want to make that investment for nothing. Mm. um so so they said uh, there are certain things that we want to incentivize we want to encourage general practice to do um, so we will attach this new income to those specific activities and the focus at the time was very much on on long term condition management so the kind of evidence based clinical care how do you improve the care that you provide for people who have diabetes or asthma or heart disease uh, or whatever so um so they they devised this i have to say rather complicated mm. um, evidence-based way of of incentivising particular GPs uh, behaviour around, as I say, um, evidence-based quality indicators. So we ended up with a scheme that was um, developed in negotiation between the government and professional leaders, uh, which uh, allocated around about 30% of a GP's income um, to those specific indicators. So we went from previously maybe 85% of a GP income um, coming from uh, capitation to a drop to below 70%. Mm. Um, so inevitably that changed what GPs do, uh, what they saw as their, their
0: principal role. And obviously that was the whole point of it, was was to, to pull that lever, the money lever, to, to make things change. Mm. Um, now one of the main criticisms of QOF is that it's because of, of the way it changed from capitation to this, you know, for particular items um, is that it it's warped care um, maybe single diseases are incentivized over maybe a more holistic care model um, and is that just the nature of the beast when you're when you're talking about putting money against against activity because it means you need some solid measures by which you can do that and, and it's hard to measure things like holistic care or, you know, those kind of things. So I, I'm just wondering, um, Is it, you, you know, was it inevitable? Was it inevitable, really?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, th- I, th- I think it was. I and mean, whilst financial incentives are relatively new in the healthcare sector, you know, maybe they've got a 20-year, 20 25-year history, starting more in the US than in the UK. Um, there's a lot of experience of using financial incentives as a mechanism of pay in, in other sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reasonable evidence underpinning what happens when you when you use them. So what inevitably happens when you tie specific payments to specific activities is people focus on those specific activities. In some ways, as you say, that's an intended consequence mm-hmm. of them. Uh, but you can't focus on everything. So you stop focusing on the things that aren't being um, incentivized. And the challenge here in the health sector is the things that you can incentivise are the relatively easy things to do. The things that you can't incentivise because we don't have specific measures of them are things which are difficult to do and actually very important. Um, so person-centred care uh, would be one of those. Coordination of care mm-hmm. uh, would be another. Uh, managing risk and uncertainty uh, would be another. Um, So those are the things that get lost and there's good evidence that that's precisely what happened. So if you look at adherence to evidence-based process indicators, they got progressively better as the financial incentives came in. If you look at continuity of care, it got progressively worse, so we've got good, hard evidence. Now, the way of managing that is is interesting. There is a way of managing that. So whilst it's inevitable, there are ways of reducing those unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. And that's by reducing the proportion of income that's related to those specific uh, elements. So, as I described to you um, for the Quality and Outcomes Framework, initially it was around about thirty percent of a GP's income. That's that's really big. That's enough to really shift behaviour in a significant way. Um, Right now, it's somewhere around ten percent. So, policymakers have recognised that they made a mistake fifteen years ago um, and have reduced down to about ten percent. The evidence. Um, from other sectors which actually was available in 2004 but was ignored by policymakers is if you make it somewhere between three and five percent then you're most likely to get the best balance between um, good outcomes promoting good outcomes and reducing unintended outcomes so there was a big difference between three and five percent that it should have been and thirty percent that it was <laughs> that was I'm afraid a manifestation of um, of politics and not very good policy making. Yeah.
0: And it's still at 10%, considerably more than, than that 3 to 5
1: So we're in a better place than we were, um, but, but, but still probably too high according to the evidence, yes.
0: Mm. So the overall level of, of fee-for-service stuff has, has gone down. Um, but that's not the only thing that's changed about COAF in the last, what, 13 years. Mm-hmm. Um, what else has changed? What, what, what other sort of major shifts have happened?
1: So when when COF was originally designed, um, there was an attempt to um, incentivise not just clinical behaviours, but also two other important elements of care. One of them was... was, Uh, kind of patient satisfaction, patient experience, and the other was practice uh, organisation. So whilst the majority of the um, points and the income related to the points was focused on clinical care, there were other elements of care that were incentivised as well. The problem is that the the patient experience indicators and the practice organisational indicators were not based on as strong um, evidence Mm. as the clinical ones. And therefore, again, it comes back to another principle of incentive beh- incentive schemes, um, use hard evidence because they're less contestable.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: if you use soft evidence or contested evidence, then you're much less likely to achieve what you're trying to achieve and much more likely to induce gaming behaviours. And that's precisely what happened. So as QOF matured over the last 15 years, the patient experience indicators and the practice organisational indicators have got lost or, or moved into other income streams. So now uh, COAF is much more focused on clinical indicators, which is probably the right place to be. Over those 15 years, we have had experiences of incentivising clinical areas where the evidence base is not as strong, where it's more contested, um, and those generally have not worked. Mm. So again, if one of the principles of, of designing incentive schemes is keep the proportion of income low, the second um, uh, principle is, is stick to the evidence because you're much more likely to get what you're trying to achieve.
0: Things that should have been apparent, perhaps, back in 2004. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, despite the changes that have gone on, it does seem like Quoth is, uh, I suppose, dying in, in some places. Scotland's abandoned it. Um, some areas in England abandoned it. NHS England says they are, in principle, um, going to remove it. Uh, do you think it is, is on its way out, generally?
1: Yes, I think it is. I mean, going back to the, to the original purpose, it was to incentivise a, a, a new focus on, on um, improving long term condition management. Um, and I think, um, I think most people would argue that, that general practice has done that. You know, we're in a much better place. We're, we provide much more evidence based care. We have better computer systems, we have better staff um, uh, distribution of work across different staff groups in primary care. So everything that COAF was trying to achieve, it largely has achieved Mm -hmm. and and has done for some time now. Mm -hmm. Um, So for that reason, it would be perfectly um, sensible for policymakers to say that job job is done. Let's move on to another job. Let's look at the um, other areas that are important that we want to incentivise. The other thing is the one of the unintended consequences which is m- much talked about through, about COAF was the extent to which it, it kind of deprofessionalised um, uh, general practitioners. Mm. It, it turned us into box tickers and and, and computer checkers. Um, it removed the focus from the patient. It, it uh, preferenced the kind of policy and the medical agenda over the patient's agenda. So, I think we recognise that more. I think I think we're at last getting to re re, re um, value um, the role of professionalism. Um, there's always a balance between trusting and checking, but we we're, we're kind of getting that balance back towards a bit more trusting because that. Is a real asset in the health mm, system. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I suspect for those reasons, um, different parts of the UK have decided that Coif has kind of done its job and it's had its time and we need to do something different. Scotland's led the way here. Um, so um, in 2016, they abolished QAF completely yep. overnight, um, which was a, a, a courageous and perhaps slightly dangerous mm-hmm. thing to do. So they almost left a vacuum. They said to the medical profession in Scotland, to GPs in Scotland, um, we're going to put all that money that's currently in coiffed into the global sum. So you'll get it anyway, whatever you do. Now show us what you want to do that's different, that will allow you to, to provide high quality general practice. And Scottish GPs are, are responding to that. By establishing a range of quality improvement uh, ventures and initiatives, uh, much more focused on peer review than on financial incentives, mm. so so that's exciting.
0: Yeah, I wanted to pick up on that because um, I mean, we there is some evidence about the the usefulness of peer review in in mm. quality measures. I, mm. I've seen some in surgery, particularly. Mm. Um, is there good evidence about that peer review within the GP sector when the care is? Maybe less. I don't know. Mechanism when it's much more about holistic mm. care.
1: Yeah. So you might expect peer review to be even more useful in areas where, where it's less technical, mm. less technically orientated. There is some evidence. I mean, the health service research evidence in general about what interventions work and what don't is, is is not strong, because it's a relatively new field. But there is there's there's enough convincing evidence to suggest that peer review is is effective. Um, how does it compare with financial incentives? That's a really interesting question. Right. I, don't, I don't think there's an answer to that, but I, but my my guess would be that um, financial incentives are more powerful. They're more likely to produce change, uh, but they're also more likely to produce unintended consequences, whereas peer review is probably a softer, slightly less effective intervention, but less likely to produce unintended consequences.
0: Mm. And I suppose much in the way that um, qual was split into clinical care and then... Sort of organisational stuff within in GP practices. That must be hard to do within a peer review.
1: Well, no, I I think you can do peer review of of, of any element of care. So, you know, when I sit down with my colleagues in my practice or or in our federation, our group of practices in in East London, uh, we'll often share um, knowledge and experiences of improving our practice administration, practice organisation, of addressing patient satisfaction, patient experience and of clinical care. So actually, in in some ways, I think peer review is is, is more um, flexible. Uh, and more usable um, than financial incentives which are which are um, an effective but blunt instrument. Mm. They're a sledgehammer mm.
0: um, and the other thing you mentioned was the sort of uh, giving some professional autonomy to GPS. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that's a really important element of of what's gone up gone on up in Scotland?
1: Yes, I do. I do. I, th- I think the 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 culture in Scotland is different from the culture in England. It's a more professionally orientated, collaborative culture, um, generally across society. Uh, England's more of a kind of um, Anglo-Saxon market type um, culture, much as it's dangerous to stereotype. I mean, that stereotype <laughs> is probably a reasonable one. Mm. Um, so I think Scotland does place a stronger emphasis on... on um, Utilising the asset that is professional trust, you know, trust of the public in a group of professionals, than, than England, where uh, where our market um, philosophy is more likely to distrust professionals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's some very interesting, you know, work in this field that goes back many years, um, ten years or more ago. Uh, a moral philosopher from Cambridge called Anara O'Neill, who's still writing about this work, gave a series of wreath lectures on on the role of of trust and uh, the balance between trusting and checking. Um, and she made a very strong argument um, for um, for society tending too much towards the checking side mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that as a consequence, um, we are not getting the best out of professionalism. Now I'm not for one second suggesting that just trust us, leave us alone because yeah. uh, that's not the way that society is and nor the way it should be. But I think it's possible to overbalance the element of accountability that's necessary, which then becomes costly and has dysfunctional consequences. Yeah. And I think in over the last 15 or 20 years, we've shifted too much towards checking and we need to shift back a little bit towards
0: more trusting. Mm. So it sounds like from what you're saying here, you wouldn't uh, mourn the, the, the death of QOF no, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't.
1: I'm not sure that, that, that the Scottish approach of just abolishing coif um, is something that would work in England, and I'm not sure there's an appetite amongst either policymakers makers or, or professional negotiators to do that. I do think there's an appetite to change, um, to shift the balance a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Perhaps if, if people want to retain an element of financial incentive in the pay for GPs, then, um, then to keep that very small. But then to address, then to design a new contract, which allows general practice to do the role that's so fundamentally important in the NHS, which is, you know, manage risk, um, develop shared decision making with patients, shift, if you like, away from the traditional medical model into a more social determinants model. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that we need to be doing in general practice, and at the moment, the current contract does not encourage them.
0: No, um, but then the move into to STPs. Would seem to to encourage that shift. Do you think that sort of having that more, um, I don't know, accountable care sort of model for?
1: Yeah, whether whether STPs are are are, are the um, the driving force for that, I, I I'm not sure. But but moving towards um, a more collaborative model, of which the accountable care systems are are, are a really good example. Um, does demonstrate that in general, kind of you've like across the health system and indeed across society, we're shifting towards a, a model that puts more emphasis on collaboration and less emphasis on competition. And that seems to me to be to be healthy, particularly in the health sector, where there's very little evidence that the emphasis that we've had on competition over the last twenty plus years has produced the benefits that its advocates would claim.
0: Mm. So now, given all that, all the things we've learned, how things have changed with Quaff, the lessons that we should have perhaps uh, taken right at the beginning, if you could go back now and design a, a, a new system to change care in the way that it needed to be done uh, in 2004, what do you think, how do you think that would look? So I, I think building on what, what we've described already in
1: 2004, an emphasis on improving Um, long-term condition management was absolutely right Mm -hmm. Um, so um, and and a stronger emphasis on on measuring clinical outcomes clinical processing clinical outcomes was absolutely right so I don't have any problem with the principle that that Croft embodied Um, but um, I think we would have uh, focus much more strongly on on the re- a smaller tighter set of indicators that had a strong evidence base underpinning them, and we would have attached less less money to them. Mm. Um, so I think that's like what we would have done then. As I've described, though, we're in a different place now. You know, we've kind of done that bit. Um, you know, we need to sustain it, but but we've done it. And now, when you look at what are the challenges for general practice, there are a very different set of challenges. So the challenges for general practice is how does it meet the needs of its local communities? How does it shift us from a focus on biomedical to a focus on social determinants of health? Um, how do we encourage shared decision making? Um, a very different model of, of, of care provision uh, or a very different model of, 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 of the, the role of health mm-hmm. professionals, if you like. And probably Particularly importantly in the current environment, how does general practice fulfil its role as um, as risk managers? How, is, how does general, how is general practice supported to provide high quality care for patients without doing multiple investigations, without doing multiple referrals, multiple admissions, multiple uh, admissions into into casualty? Because those are the things that are going to kill the NHS. Mm. So general practice has a, a really fundamental role in in um, producing a more sustainable NHS. Um, and its contract has to reflect that role, and at the moment it, it, it doesn't. Mm. There was a lovely, um, uh, you know, what is a contract? Um, of course, it's a way of paying doctors, but it's more than that, and Nigel Edwards from, uh, from the Nuffield Trust once described uh, a contract as nothing more than a starting point for a discussion, and the discussion is what are we trying to fulfill by, by what are we trying to incentivize, what are we trying to encourage in the way that we um, pay our health professionals, um, and and the answer to that question is something very different from what it was 15 years ago. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And hard to encapsulate in you know, a contract or even a conversation just between GPs. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about much wider things here.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, how one involves the, the public or society in that is very difficult, mm-hmm. I think. But it does require a, a mature discussion between policymakers who are designing our health system um, politicians who have a democratic responsibility to, to run it um, health professionals who are providing the frontline care um, and academics who have who bring their specific body of expertise so I think we need a I think we need a broader discussion than the relatively narrow and relatively technocratic discussion that we had 15 years ago. Yeah.